a hundred years ago, most kids were actually dying of infectious diseases. But these days, that doesn't happen. And so it's really a balance between this hygiene to prevent your kid from getting all these highly infectious agents and killing them early in life, and then also exposed to microbes. But I would argue that the things that killed kids a hundred years ago, you know, diphtheria, cholera, tetanus, smallpox, we don't have those in our society. So the threat to the child these days due to infectious agents is very little. But we're still behaving like there's a major threat and we have to keep these kids really clean. No, no, they might get an infection. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me is Dr. Brett Finlay, a professor of microbiology at the University of British Columbia and co-author of Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Your Child from an Over-Sanitized World. Dr. Finlay, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks. So you've been conducting research on human microbes for many years, but the human microbiome has only become a topic of high interest among the public, I would say, in just the last few years. Many people, myself included, have experienced the effects of an unhealthy or unbalanced gut microbiome and are looking for ways to resolve these health problems as well as prevent them from affecting our children. Uh, You've identified that early childhood is a crucial time for building a stable microbiome, and you focus specifically on this stage of life in the book. So can you start us off by telling us why it's important for parents to think about their children's microbiome? Yeah, so that's a lot there. Um, (laughs) It's true the microbiome field is fairly new, so we as a research lab got into it in the early 2000s. My lab historically worked on diarrhea bacteria such as E. coli and salmonella. And then we started asking the rather naive question, well, there's all these other microbes in the gut that we've known about since Anthony Van Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope type thing, but we've never ever considered them. And back then it was called the normal flora. And we did some very crude experiments to see what happens you know, if the microbes affected diarrhea. And, of course, they did, and um, that got us started down this whole slippery slope or almost a black hole of the microbiome world, which, as you now know, has just exploded. Mm-hmm. So what we're starting – one of the areas that we're starting to – what we've done a fair bit of research in is um, early in life. So really, the microbes seem to have their biggest influence on us as people – what I like to call the bookends of life, early in life and late in life. Um, Another story, another book, I wrote The Whole Body Microbiome. That's about microbes and healthy aging. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about early in life. So we had some clues that early life microbes were important for quite a while. There's these animals that we call them germ-free. So you can take mice, you birth them by C-section, so they're sterile, and you can then put them in cages and feed them sterilized food and water. And so they have no microbes in them, and they've been doing this since the 1950s. And they know that if they give animals key um, vitamins, they can actually keep these things alive. But they don't develop normally. And what they knew for a long time is their gut didn't develop normally, their um, immune system was not normal, and even their um, brain didn't develop normally. So there was hints at that. And then um, then all these studies started to come out that early life microbes seem to influence how we develop. And our particular take on it is we showed in terms of asthma how microbes influence early life and affect ultimate asthma outcome. 
I mean, just a simple fact of how you're born. Let's pretend you're born by a C-section. You have a 25% higher rate of being asthmatic and a 30% higher rate of being obese just by how you stick your head out into this world. Mm -hmm. And there's all these clues of antibiotics during life influencing um, many of these things, including asthma and obesity and other things. And so over the last few years, there's been numerous studies now pointing to the concept that early in life, the microbes you get in your very first 100 days of life, really for the first even hours on, play a, a real role in how we develop as an organism. And this includes um, influencing, shaping the immune system, which is how you can get to, see um, asthma and um, food allergies and things. This also affects brain development, malnutrition. We and others have done studies that microbes affect, early life microbes affect how the brain actually develops. And then also gut physiology and things. So it's really this avalanche of, of data um, that early in life, really the first 100 days, it's absolutely critical for your kids to be exposed to microbes. And this, of course, goes counter to what society says, mm-hmm. which is, well, if clean is good, cleaner is better, right? So we have to sterilize every bottle and, uh, you know, um, wipe down everything in baby wipes. Yet if you think of how we've evolved as a human species, if you go back 100, 200 years, I mean, we didn't have sanitary wipes and we didn't have sterilized bottles and kids were playing in, you know, feces and barnyards and everything else. And so it's really, I mean, the central tenet is that it's really important your kids get exposed to these natural microbes and things like C-section and living really cleanly is actually hampering your child's ability to get exposed to these. And we now know that actually has... Um, um, adverse type outcomes, not good for the kid. And um, so that's kind of the general thoughts of what we have in the subject. So I think we're realizing now that a lot of issues caused by having um, an insufficiently diverse gut microbiome in adulthood mm-hmm. can be traced back to diet. And like you said, other circumstances experienced in early childhood, uh, many different types of disorders that can be linked to gut health are on the rise because we live in a much more sanitized world. Can you explain how the shift in how um, sanitation and our evolution towards more intense sanitation has affected our gut microbiome? Yeah, I think you've hit a major problem that we as a society are facing in that um, you were right, you want a diverse microbiome. Basically, the microbiome is all the microbes in and on you, and your gut is full of them. There's more microbes in your gut than there are human cells type thing. Um, but it's, it's really an ecosystem. And we know with ecosystems, you want biodiversity. You want an Amazon jungle full of many different species. And ecologists will tell you that the more species diversity you have, the healthier the ecosystem. Now, as we move in our society towards eating um, refined foods, a lot of white sugar, a lot of white flour, um, basically we're getting away from eating a lot of the diverse foods we used to eat with that had lots of plant fibers and nuts and legumes type things. And ironically, these are really microbial foods. So when you're eating white sugar and white flour, what happens is those are digested very early up in the digestive system before they ever reach microbes down in the lower gut. And when you're eating, you know, plant fiber and things like this, these are actually the microbial foods that are feeding the microbes and you got lower down. So ironically, we're starving those microbes and then we're pushing the microbes towards a much less diverse type composition because it takes very few microbes to break down white sugar and white flour. Um, so what we're seeing in society overall is this trend towards these um, very 
in a sense, simple diets where they don't have the complex carbohydrates and fibers that are normal microbial foods that are broken down by the microbes. And so this is creating major problems, and study after study is showing that, you know, white sugar, white flour is not a very good diet from a microbe's point of view and also human's point of view. And this is really contributing to the major, a lot of the major disease problems we see now, diabetes, type 2 diabetes and obesity and all these other diseases that we need to see now in our society they didn't really see 100 years ago. Is the problem really just having a lower diversity of bacteria in the gut, or is it more so an overcrowding of the gut of a specific species of bacteria that may not necessarily be as beneficial as some other species? Uh, the answer is correct to both of those. It's a combination of those two things. Um, when you eat white sugar, white flour, not only you decrease the diversity of the microbes, but you also increase the, the basically the bad microbes. These are things that trigger inflammation, trigger um, adverse effects type things. They're called Enterobacteriaceae, and they trigger a lot of inflammation, and this inflammation is then what leads to the problems. So um, the answer is both of the above, as you suggest. So what do you think is the solution to over-sanitation? Are you literally telling hmm. people to let their children eat dirt? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when we're thinking of the title of the book, we couldn't see, you know, I mean, let them dirt is obviously a very simplified Sketchy. version. Yeah. Let, let, let them eat microbes that are helpful, <laughs> that they're found in dirt and other things, and does make a very good title. Uh, I'm not advocating actual consumption of dirt. I'm telling parents that they should let their kids to get exposed to the microbes that Homo sapiens have evolutionarily been evolving with. And so this includes things like, you know, um, vaginal birth as opposed to C-section. This includes um, less hygienic conditions that we normally consider um, because we know those microbes that they normally encounter are really, really important for the childhood development of their gut, their immune system, the brain, and many other things. So I think as a parent, one wants to think of all the childhood exposures in the context of, you know, can we expose these kids to healthy microbes while also mitigating the, the bad microbe exposure that, that existed, say, 100 years ago. So you mentioned in the book that children who grow up, uh, I, I would say, in messier environments like on a farm or with a cat or a dog in the home, they mm. would fare better than children who grow up in more sterile homes, especially if they don't spend much time outdoors. So in the case of children who don't live anywhere near a farm or who do not have a pet at home for whatever reason, maybe there are allergies um, among the family members, what can the parents of those children do to ensure that their children are exposed to the good micro, um, the, the good bacteria? Yeah, I think this is actually a remarkably large problem facing society, the exposure to normal microbes that... You know, when you think of how we live with computer screens and, you know, we don't really get a lot of nature in, in the average um, childhood rearing experience now. Um, so parents really need to think how to do it. I mean, you know, petting zoos or even going to the playground where there's grass and dirt and letting the kid put a stone or stick in their mouth, um, going to the country in the weekends type thing. Um, I think it's a problem in every generation are we're getting, quote, cleaner and cleaner, but the problem is our microbes are also getting less and less diverse. And it's, you know, if you think how your grandparents were born as kids and raised versus how we're raised versus how your grandkids are going to be raised, I think there's major issues in terms of the microbes. We're getting cleaner and cleaner. And I don't have the perfect solution, um, but I think, you know, 
the first step is realizing these early life microbes are important, and then the second step, which you're which you're alluding to, which is more difficult. Well, okay, if they're important, how do I get my kids exposed to them? I mean, I think just even exposed to other kids, if they're not have it's not flu season or cold season, this is great. They can get them that way. Um, you know, let your kid get out in the world because there are lots of microbes out there, and try and pick some of them up. There is no perfect probiotic or anything you can give your kid right now that will reconstitute all these quote healthy microbes. Um, maybe in the future, but we're not there yet. I think a really good argument you could use to convince a parent to let their kids spend time outdoors and get messy and be exposed to microbes uh, is that, uh, you know, certain disorders of the immune system can be linked to a person's gut microbiome. So can you explain uh, this connection? Yeah, there's a very strong connection between the immune system development and the microbes. Um, I mean, I've already told you about C-section, you know, increases asthma rates, as does not having a pet in the house, as does taking antibiotics in the first year, as does bottle feeding or furting breastfeeding. And what we now realize in the first three months, as the immune system is just starting to develop, it's really shaped by the microbes it encounters. And if you have these, quote, healthy microbes, it pushes the immune system in sort of a normal-type development. If you don't have these microbes and have different ones, you then go towards more allergic-type immune system. And then when you encounter allergens and, um, and things like this, you then trigger food allergies and asthma later in life because your immune system is more predisposed to that. So I mean, there's lots of studies showing that early-life microbes really do influence how the immune system is actually being shaped and the better the microbes, basically the better immune system, which then relates to immune diseases or non-immune diseases um, down the line. Now, as it turns out, uh, a person's gut microbiome can be influenced even before birth, during the mother's pregnancy. Yeah. So can you explain yeah. how that works? What are some factors that can impact a fetus's microbiome? And what are some things that a pregnant mother could do to mm-hmm. help give her baby the best gut microbial system possible? Yeah, as um, I think that's a really important point that that you know diet and, and the you know while you're pregnant what you eat is, is really important because that will shape your microbes and then when that kid is born if they're born by vaginal delivery they will also pick up your microbes and most of the microbes they inherit upon birth are from the mother so it's really important the mother has good microbiome when you're born. But also even before that, when the mother has certain microbes in their gut, these microbes are chewing on food and they release these things called metabolites that then cross the gut barrier and will also cross the placental barrier and be circulating even in contact with the um, with the fetus within the mother. And we know that even those events seem to start to shape how the fetus actually develops. And just to give you one pragmatic example, so let's say you're a thin mother um, and you're pregnant, third trimester, you say, oh, yeah, I can finally eat whatever I want. I can just, you know, gain, you know, 100 pounds, some um, sort of thing. And you gain much more weight than you should um, for, for being pregnant. Well, when you're gaining that weight, um, you're you're pushing your microbes more towards the obese type micro um, phenotype that we see associated with obesity, which is unhealthy. And then when your kid is born, they inherit those microbes, and that kid is much more at risk for becoming obese than if you just gain the normal amount as, 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 as expected during pregnancy. So that's one way of, you know, that you really should, even, even in third trimester and stuff, you know, think about what you're reading because, you know, it's going to influence your microbes, which then are given on to the kid. What kind of best practices would you recommend for expecting mothers 
Is there a certain type of diet that's ideal? Yeah, the whole diet microbiome link is 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 certainly there because pretty much the vast majority of what you eat is not broken down by you. It's broken down by your microbes, which then make all these molecules that that influence you. Um, I think. A lot of it has to do with what your mother told you to eat. Um, so, I mean, eating, um, you know, less red meat, eating a lot more fruits, nuts, legumes, um, a glass of red wine a day type thing. The Mediterranean type diet is a good one. Um, those kind of diets really, they're, we now know they influence remarkably the microbes in, in the gut of, of anyone, including mothers, and in pushing them towards a much healthier type of microbiome composition. So in addition to giving your kids the right nutrients, which they need when they're developing, which is all the reason you shouldn't live off of donuts when you're pregnant, um, you know, you're also influencing the microbe composition, which then influence what microbes the kid inherits and then also how the kid actually fares later in life. So eat healthy when you're pregnant because it's not only you eating for you, you're eating for your fetus. And, um, and we know for a whole bunch of reasons that's important. Are there certain types of activities that an expecting mother should avoid or should do uh, to help improve the likelihood that their baby will have a healthy gut microbiome? Um, I'm not an expert on that. Um, there's in non-pregnant people, there's nice studies showing that exercise pushes microbiome to more healthy composition. Um, I have not seen it for, for data for pregnant moms and what that does to their microbiome. Um, I mean, ironically, it all boils down to very boring stuff, and that's diet and exercise. And But the, the caveat is I think we can add now that both diet and exercise work through basically a microbial interface, and they actually influence microbial composition, which then makes you healthier um, in both through the microbes plus through the direct effects of you know cardiovascular issues with exercise, et cetera. Um, so I don't think there's anything specific one I can recommend. I'm not an expert in this, mm-hmm. but I think that just um, eating healthily and getting exercise, they will always do you well, no matter what stage of life you're at. Say you have an expecting mother who is unhealthy to begin with. Say she's obese and then she becomes pregnant. Is there a possibility for her to shift her personal gut microbiome in a way to prevent passing on obesity to her child? Uh, not that I'm aware of at this stage. Um, I mean, I think even mother being aware of it, if she can eat healthier diet during pregnancy. It may may encourage the microbes um, to, you know, shape a little bit um, less less obese type thing. Um, but I think, you know, and then when the kid is born, you really should think about diet. What diet is that kid getting? Um, Given the frequency of obesity in our society, it's obviously a big issue, but there unfortunately is no magic bullet now um, about what to do to try and try and circumvent the problem you're talking about. You explained that the circumstances during labor uh, can also have a significant impact on a child's microbiome. So could you elaborate on this for us? Yeah, so during labor, obviously, the body's undergoing major stress. There's stress hormones, et cetera, related to it, and the fetus is undergoing huge stress as it gets squeezed through the birth canal type thing. And stress, as we know, actually has, again, has a remarkable shift on the microbiome. People lead very stressful lives. Their microbiomes are generally not very good from what, what we know about microcompositions type thing. Um, but... But then you also got to realize that birth is a very natural process. We've been doing it ever since we've evolved from whatever. Um, 
So um, it's a natural part of it, and I think a fetus is 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 normally um, realizes developmentally this is going to happen, and so they they have ways of coping with it. It's just part of birth. Um, but I think stressful lifestyles and stuff that is not so healthy from a microbiome point of view. You mentioned a couple times now uh, C sections. Uh, I have a a personal stake in this topic, so it's time for me to ask a personal question. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I was born a month premature, actually, via Uh C-section. So you've got an entire section of the book dedicated to C-sections and the C-section epidemic um, and how being delivered this way affects an infant's microbiome. Uh, I remembered while I was reading this section that I've actually heard about the microbial disadvantage of being born via C-section before, and when I had first heard about it, I was actually very concerned. So can you explain the difference that a C-section makes? Sure. So born by C-section, it means that you don't acquire the vaginal microbes and also the fecal microbes of a natural birth. And the problem with that is that those microbes are really important for breaking down milk, things like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, for example. And so you deprive your your kid of those type of microbes, and in return, you also acquire the mum's skin microbes, um, probably due to breastfeeding and just contact, contact with mum's skin. So the kid has a skewed microbiome off the start. And what studies are showing is that that doesn't guarantee, but it certainly increases the risk of diseases such as asthma, such as food allergies, such as obesity. And it really increases the odds of that because you don't have the, the, the microbes that you normally get in C-section. So now there is this new thing that's being studied. The idea is, well, okay, if I have to have a C-section, 10% of women need this. Okay, I'm one of those poor women. What can I do to help? Well, there's this thing called um, basically vaginal recolonization um, where you basically upon birth by C-section, you take a vaginal swab of, and then you colonize the ears, nose, and mouth of the mm-hmm. kid with this swab and recolonize it. So studies underway, whether that's, effective or not, can it actually um, reconstitute the microbes just because you had a C-section back to more like a vaginal? We don't know. Thus far, the study is about a year out. It says that, yes, you can recolonize with these microbes, but we're not far enough out to say, does it decrease rates of obesity and asthma and other things associated with C-section? It's also a very risky business because there's a, a bacterial pathogen called group B streptococcus that some women carry in the vagina. And if that's transferred to a newborn baby, it can be fatal. So you have to make sure that you counter that. But it's very talked about, um, the idea of these vaginal swabs and things. Um, some naturopaths are using it, but medically there's no data to say it works or doesn't at this stage. I wanted to know what has spurred the C-section epidemic. If you say that only 10% of women actually require C-section, why is it that the actual percentage of women who are getting C-sections is much higher? It's a combination of factors. It's, you know, um, if you, I mean, some women, you know, it's very convenient. At 9 a.m. Monday morning, I can have my baby. I can, you know, plan my life around it as opposed to 3 or 2 in the morning when you're sleep-deprived. Um, it's also convenient from obstetrician's point of view if you have a scheduled C-section versus middle of the night. Um, in some societies, um, it's actually considered um, more technologically advanced, shall we say. Um, and a, a really lovely well, case example is Brazil, where they have upwards of 70, 80, 90% cesarean section rates. And that 
is partly because it's cool to have a bikini scar. Um, it shows you're rich enough you can afford one. Um, and also the obstetricians in Brazil are unionized and they basically say, well, we're not going to do vaginal births. We don't have to. Let's do C-sections so that we don't have to stay up in the night. And there's a bunch of variety of reasons, um, socially. And, um, so C-sections have their place, but, um, I would say that if you don't have to have one and you're up for vaginal birth, I would encourage one to try that for all the reasons we talked about. Do you think doctors should be obligated to inform their patients of the disadvantage they're putting their children at if they choose to do a C-section when it's not necessary? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I'm not a medical ethicist, so I'm not going to go there in terms of yes or no. Um, I would hope that, it, that, that my obstetrician would discuss it if my wife and I were considering a C-section and realized this is one of the things. And that's actually a bigger question, um, even in antibiotic use. So antibiotics, we know, cause drastic effects on the microbiome. And should physicians be obligated to discuss, well, you know, it, it's a, probably a viral ear infection and antibiotics probably aren't going to work, but you they don't hurt. You can have them anyway. And we now know they actually do hurt. And so maybe those discussions should be had. Um, so that's part of the bigger picture of um, A, you know, consumers being educated and aware of this and B, physicians also discussing these issues with their patients. Would you say that patients should at the very least be informed of the possibility of using a vaginal swab to make up for the loss of microbes when a C-section is performed? Not at this stage. Um, I mean, I th we don't have the medical evidence yet. Um, a lot of people are doing it anyway. Um, but like I said, there could be potential risk with group B strep contaminating the, the, the newborn with this. So at this stage, this is not a medically accepted mm -hmm. practice because there's no data to say it works or doesn't work. So mm -hmm. at this stage, I think it's not up to a physician to discuss these things because it's not on the table. If there was data to say that this actually improved the microbes and was beneficial, then of course, but we're not there yet. Have there been any studies published um, where that have sampled a population of people who have been born by a C-section and have followed them later into adulthood to and made a connection between um, instances of asthma or other health issues and being born by a C-section? Yeah, so there's lots of studies out there showing that um, people born by C-section later in life have significant diseases specifically increased risk for obesity, asthma, food allergies, and many others. What we don't see is differences, say, in an adult microbiome. We can't sample adults and say, yes, you were born by C-section or not. Um, but we can go back and say, who was born by C-section? What are the rates of these diseases? And there's no doubt that C-section increases the rates for many of these diseases. It doesn't guarantee them, but it certainly shows you an increased chance of getting them. And that all goes back to how it does with the early life microbes affecting how the immune system develops and many other parts of the body develop early in life. Right now I want to get into things parents can do to or avoid doing to give their kids um, gut microbiome a boost after they've been born. Um, so the first type of food that an infant will encounter is most likely breast milk. Would you say mm -hmm. that breast milk is better than formula? And mm -hmm. what could Why? one do if they're not able to breastfeed? Yeah, um, you know, throughout Let Them Eat Dirt, we have at, every, at the end of every chapter, there's sort of helpful hints what you can do um, um, for, for these very things. There's no doubt breast milk. Breast milk is a wonderful substance. It's a complex substance. And um, for a while there, you know, um, formula was, was, was touted as, well, it's more sophisticated, it's technologically advanced, it's better for your kid. That's not true. Um, breast milk, first of all, it's 
full of something called IgA, which is an antibody that really prevents many infections in kids. Um, for the first six months to a year of life, the kid does not have a normal immune system. It hasn't developed yet. So you're relying on all the mother's antibodies in her breast milk to prevent all the infections that the kid is exposed to in that first year. Um, but then breast milk is also full of nutrients, um, and formula does not emulate all those nutrients. It emulates some of the major ones, um, but not all of them. And it turns out that breast milk is actually a very good food for microbes, and a lot of the breast milk components are not broken down by the kid, but they're broken down by the microbes that actually come from the woman's vagina um, that dissolve things like lactobacillus and then, then basically break down these milk products, which then feeds the kids more energy. So ironically, when you're you know breastfeeding or giving breast milk to kids, you're actually feeding a lot of the microbes, beneficial microbes, that then actually help to then help the kid grow and form in the it has some of these components, but there there's no formula that, you know, there's thousands of compounds of breast milk and, and way less than that in, in formula. So formula is, a, is, in essence, a poor substitute. Now, if you can't breastfeed, obviously there's issues. You say have mastitis or something or don't have the milk supply. Um, there are ways of increasing the, the child's microbiome. You can give them probiotics painted on the mother's nipple and other examples of this um, to try and, and um, increase the, the kid's microbiome in that sense. Uh, well, beyond breast milk or formula, what kinds of foods should be given to a child when they are able to eat different types of food to help boost their gut flora? Yeah, so the first four months of life or so is your strictly breast milk, um, and then you start to transition to solid foods in the you know four to seven month range. And at that time, you have to remember the gut is still very permeable, so you only want to give them small amounts of solid food that then is also given with breast milk supplements. And but you should start introducing them to all the foods that the kids will be exposed to later in life. You can give them little bits of these types of foods, because what that does is that sort of tolerance the kid to these foods they'll see later in life and um, you know by about seven months the, the, the gut is starting to sort of really seal up and you can really start to increase the solid foods and then often by a year kids are, are off breast milk um, and beyond that it's really up to the mother she wants to keep breastfeeding along the solid foods so for a long time, it was, you know, with respect to food allergies, you were supposed to avoid all allergic potential foods, avoid mm -hmm. eggs, anything else, peanuts, anything else this kid might get exposed to with the idea that don't get exposed them so they can't develop allergies later in life. And that's now being completely debunked, mainly because in Israel, they give kids these sort of candy bars that are basically peanut-based um, um components early in life and they realize these kids didn't get peanut allergies and so ironically the tables are 180 and the idea is to introduce allergic foods um, early in life starting at four months type things in small amounts and get them into the kid so the kid can realize yeah that's normal and my immune system's quite happy with this so when they start eating you know peanuts later in life or whatever that's normal and don't react to them so and the other reason you want to start early is that later, if you wait until, if you start before four months, the gut's not healed up or sealed up. So it, it'll go right through and may trigger um, allergic reactions. Mm -hmm. If you wait till after seven months, these kids are starting to get pretty big and they can eat a big, big helping of it. And so it's thought that, you know, they get too high a dose initially. If you just start at seven months, you might trigger allergic reactions there. So four to seven months is the, is the golden window to start introducing along with breast milk, you know, small, small pieces or components of, of the regular foods to get the kid used to the idea that this is what you're going to see the rest of your life. 
It seems like exposure is the key, or lack thereof is the key here. So to avoid a, a child developing severe allergies, any types of food or other substances, they should be exposed to them quite early in life. And to avoid a, the development of immune disorders, um, children should be exposed to uh, environments that contain different types of bacteria. Yep, you've said it well. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> the general concept, absolutely. So I'd like to talk about probiotics now. They're mentioned quite a lot throughout the book, and most people are pretty familiar with the concept of probiotics by this point. So can you tell us what exactly probiotics are? What do they consist of? Yeah, I mean, we hear a lot about probiotics. What the actual definition is, that they're live microbes, so these are live bacteria um, or yeast, and they supposedly have some defined health benefit, and they do no harm. So really, these are just microbes that you take in large numbers that you ingest. Um, they're usually they should be alive, and then you take these things, and ideally they have some effects. And the biggest problem with probiotics is they're not regulated like standard medicines. So there's a variety of um, a variety of them on the market, an overwhelming number actually, but they don't have to make these clinical criteria that you have to do with drugs, so they have mixed results in terms of how much they work. And there's no doubt some probiotics work for some things, but um, because of the large numbers, um, not all probiotics work, and some work better than others for different things or others. So if you think of using probiotics, it's overwhelming if you wander into a health food store and you see this these shelves and shelves and shelves of all these probiotics. And the analogy I like to use, it's kind of like being a new uh, pair of runners. You go to a sporting goods store and you you walk up to the wall and there's runners, there's court shoes and basketball shoes and hiking shoes, and you don't just grab the nearest pair and say you're done. And the best way to deal with probiotics is there's a wonderful site called probioticchart.ca, and there's also another one in the States, just Google probiotic charts. And in this chart, it lists all the probiotics that are available, and it also lists um, what the microbes are, how to store them, what the doses are, but most importantly, it lists, based on different diseases, what is the clinical evidence they actually work. So some probiotics work for antibiotic-associated diarrhea, some work for eczema, some work for, um, there's a yeast that works for C. difficile, and it tells you what the level of clinical evidence is, with the gold standard being um, double-blind placebo-controlled trials. And some have gone through this. So careful with probiotics. But the other thing to know about probiotics is they're, they're common bacteria. Um, they're usually lactobacillus, which is normally a vaginal micro, microbe, or bifidobacter, which is often found in breast milk. Um, and so they're not normal inhabitants of the gut. So they don't, when you swallow them, it, they don't then take up uh, residence in the gut. They basically get flushed through. And that's why you need to take them in large numbers every day because really they're being flushed through so they don't displace all the microbes um, there. And so that's another disadvantage. On the bright side of things, I think we're going to see amazing new combinations of microbes, like 10, 12 together, microbes from the gut, they're for the gut, and when you put this community in, it will take residence and actually do some defined biochemical output that you want with how to find health benefits. So I see probiotics being very early stages. There's a lot of people starting to work on all these new microbes we're finding as part of the microbiome and using these as more intelligent probiotics that will actually, I think they will have some some really good clinical use in the future. Uh, something you often hear mentioned um, along with probiotics is uh, 
prebiotic, prebiotic foods. Uh, yep. So these are types of foods that are meant to help probiotic bacteria flourish in the gut. Uh, but yep. my understanding of them ends there. So could you elaborate for us on how probiotics yep. and probiotics are connected? Yeah, so that we're going to be dealing with three terms. There's probiotics, which are live bacteria. There's prebiotics, which are, as you say, these are microbial foods, usually sugars such as inulin and complex carbohydrates that are designed to feed certain microbes like the probiotic. And then there's the neat concept, well, you feed the microbe and the food. This is called a symbiotic. Now, the idea of prebiotics is really neat that you can actually feed these microbes and select for certain types. The problem with prebiotics is that thus far we don't have enough good clinical evidence to say whether they really work or not. My guess is they probably do because it just makes sense. If you're feeding the right microbes, they will then grow up. Um, but uh, if you're looking at just critically at clinical evidence, there's not enough clinical evidence right now to say anything clinically about prebiotics. The other thing about prebiotics is you're giving a food, but that food is going to be microbe food for not just the probiotic, it'll be microbe food for other microbes too. So it's not specifically, you know, a particular type of food that only one bacterium can eat, and so it will also feed others. So there's, again, there's a lot of hope in the future that we can design microbe foods. It's really like a diet where you eat lots of fiber to enrich for good microbes. Um, but right now it's still early days and there's no clinical data for it. So we don't know at this point if there are specific types of foods we could eat to help increase the population of beneficial bacteria in our gut. Well, that's a different question. That's not the prebiotic question. That's really a diet question. Mm -hmm. And I think the answer to diet is yes. We certainly know what are good diets and what aren't. And um, there's a basically it's what your mother told you you should eat. So this is, you know, fruits, nuts, legumes, your salad, the complex plants, stay away from copious quantities of red meat, um, avoid um, white sugar, white flour type things. Um, and the reason you do that is if you eat a lot of white sugar and white flour, it's already broken down. So your body absorbs that very high up in the intestinal tract in the small intestine. And it never reaches down to the large intestine where the microbes all live. And so, in essence, you're actually starving your microbes. When you're eating, chomping on a piece of celery or something, that's all complex fiber, cellulose and things. And that actually doesn't get broken down by us. It goes all the way down into your large bowel, and there it hits these teeming numbers of microbes that chew away on all these complex carbohydrates. And that's actually, you're feeding your microbes that way, and that is actually very beneficial for you. So when it comes to bacteria living in the gut, uh, is more diversity always better or are there specific types of bacteria that are especially known to be beneficial other than the ones that you've mentioned so far? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. What are the good bacteria in my gut and how can I get them and promote them type thing? Um, there are some that are thought to be quite beneficial. They have complex names like acromancy and things. Um, but um, we really, we're not very good at saying what Okay, here's these three microbes, and if I have them, I'm going to be, you know, the next triathlete of the world type thing. They're, they're wonderful. Um, we're not very good at that yet. Um, in answer to your diversity question, the answer is yes. I mean, the gut is an ecosystem, and as you know, um, diverse ecosystems are much healthier than, you know, smaller number of species. Well, no, you know, in the Amazon rainforest, it's so good as an ecosystem because there's so many diverse species in there. And the same holds true with the gut. Generally speaking, the more diverse your microbes in your gut, the better off you're going to be. And that also relates back to diet because the more varied a diet you eat, the more microbes you're going to select. And that actually promotes this diversity, which promotes health in that sense. 
Do you think at some point in the future we'll be able to come up with a kind of recipe consisting of mm. the best species of bacteria for a healthy gut? Um, I think there's a lot of people working towards this. I don't think it's yes and no. I mean, I think we will. I mean, there's already there's a company called Day2.com that basically will analyze your feces and say that, you know, based on your microbes you have, we can predict which foods that you eat, which cause glucose spikes are bad for obesity and diabetes versus not. And so really, this is kind of like a personalized diet. Now, the other thing to remember is that every single person's microbes are different than anyone else's. Each of us has a unique, there is no microbe that's conserved in all people. So um, it's going to vary, and you know that also explains why some people can eat you know lots of different kinds of foods and not gain weight, others can't, for example. Um, so it's going to take a bit of a personalized medicine approach, I think, to actually get good microbes and good and bad ones. Um, right now we don't have that knowledge, so we're left with the just, you know, eat a healthy diet and get exercise. And ironically, that will give you really good microbes, <laughs> um, no matter what your composition is. How is it that each person could have a completely unique microbial ecosystem if you would say at a particular population of people, say, uh, in North America, everyone eats more or less the same types of foods? Yeah, that, that that's a great point. Um, I think... I mean, we know that the microbes in, say, North Americans are different than the microbes in China, presumably because of different diets and things. But the microbes in you are most closely related to other people that inhabit that house with you. So it could be a spouse or kids. And they're not as close as your twin brother or sister that lives on the other side of the globe. Um, that's because it's all environment dictated. And there actually aren't any host genes that really define which microbes you have. Now, the other way to think of it, well, if we know in biology that important things are conserved, and if you believe what I've been trying to say, that microbes are important, why on earth do we have these different microbes in Egypt? Shouldn't we all just have this good set of microbes and be done with it? And what I tell people is to don't think of the microbes. Things Think of the duties and the jobs they're doing. And let's pretend you need these 10,000 genes from these all, any microbe expressed in the gut to do these functions, it really doesn't matter which microbe encodes it as long as the job gets done. And so when you start to think like that, it, 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 there is a defined set of, 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 of basic microbial products you need in the gut, and it doesn't really matter which microbe encodes it. So that's why you and I can have very different microbes, and our microbes are doing very similar things in terms of digesting the food and stuff. So on the complete flip side of probiotics, uh, we've mentioned a few times throughout this interview already, uh, is uh, antibiotics. Uh, so you've got yeah. a section in the book uh, that describes the antibiotic epidemic. So could you tell us about this more in detail? Yeah, so antibiotics are really chemicals, drugs that kill microbes. Um, anti is against and biotic is life. So and they kill things. Against life is where they've come from. And I think, arguably, they were probably the biggest medical breakthrough of the last century. I mean, they saved countless lives when they came online about World War II. Um, normally, if a person had an infection back pre-antibiotics, many times you would die of that infection. Now all you do is take an antibiotic and you're cured. And it's just miracle drugs. And they were a godsend to medicine. You can now have surgeries without getting infections. You can treat all these what would normally lethal diseases, and you, you would then just take an antibody and fine. So that's great. 
But what antibiotics don't do is kill a particular microbe. They kill lots of microbes. They really just carpet bomb the, the, the microbes. And so our, what happens when you take an antibiotic is you, yes, you might kill the infectious agent, but you also wipe out many, many other bacteria. And this has consequences. Um, many women say we'll take an antibiotic for one thing and they get a urinary tract infection as a secondary result because the antibiotic wiped out all the good microbes in the urinary tract and so then they actually get other pathogens caused in and they get disease. So like all things, if they're good, if good is good, let's use it more. Make And we've been using antibiotics like crazy in the last while. The average American kid gets up to 10 courses of antibiotics before they even get to school. And the problem with that is that you're affecting the microbes each time you use antibiotics. We also historically have used antibiotics in agriculture, and up until recently, about 80% of all antibiotic use was in agriculture as growth supplements. So we're dumping these millions of tons of these antibiotics in the, into the agricultural foods and things, which of course then leach into the environment, and of course we then get resistance, and we also get antibiotic shifts of the microbes in us. So my, my bottom line take on antibiotics is that if you have a life-threatening infection, that antibiotics are going to work absolutely. They'll save your life. Don't, no questions asked whatsoever. If you have a child that's got a, uh, maybe a viral ear infection and it's screaming and the doctor says, well, let's wait a day to see what happens, don't insist on antibiotics. They have their reasons because most ear, many ear infections are caused by viruses instead of bacteria and antibiotics are not going to work on it. So we need to prudently use antibiotics, both because excessive use causes increased resistance, but also more recently we've seen excessive use also affects antibiotics. So taking antibiotics in life has been shown to be associated with increased amounts of depression and anxiety, for example, um, because it seems to affect microbes that seem to have, affect the brain. They're, they're being associated with obesity and asthma. Early life antibiotics in kids have a very detrimental effect on both asthma and obesity, and that's probably your biggest risk factor for those diseases because you're altering your microbes through the antibiotics. So use them wisely. If it's, a, if it's an infection that they work against, absolutely use it but don't use them indiscriminately. Do you think there's a possibility of ever producing a targeted antibiotic? There's a lot of talk. There's a lot of hope. Many of your um, listeners will have heard of CRISPR, which is this cool new gene technology that supposedly can go in and target a particular gene in a particular organism, such as a microbe. That's not been proven to work. Ideally, yes. Okay, you you have an infection, go to the hospital, they take your blood out, they sequence it, they say, oh, you've got this particular microorganism, we're just going to add this thing to nuke it out and leave everything else the same. Thus far, that's future, and we have, we're not there yet. CRISPR may work, I don't know yet, it really hasn't been shown either way. Um, it, it would be the dream, because then we mm -hmm. can leave all our other normal microbes in there in place, and we can just take the nasty one out, and, and that's wonderful, but it's still a dream right now. Okay, let's move on to disorders and diseases that can be linked to your microbiome. So I'm talking about obesity, diabetes, celiac disease, IBS, asthma, eczema, allergies, the list goes on. Uh, how is it that there are so many different types, very, diff very different types of these health issues that are associated with the gut? Yeah. I mean, the standing joke in the microbiome field is what isn't associated with you know, the mm -hmm. microbes. Um, 
So all the lists you're listing are what you might call industrial or developed country type diseases that we didn't see 100 years ago, you know, when infectious diseases was king of diseases. Um, and each of those diseases, um, what you can show is that people with those diseases, their microbes are different than people that don't have those diseases. We call it dysbiotic. That doesn't say the microbes are causing the disease. It just says there's correlation. But more and more, um, we're starting to realize that, yes, indeed, microbes are influence disease. We can pick a few of them, say, for example, asthma. Our work and others have shown that really the early life microbes influence how the immune system develops, and it can push you to be allergic, asthmatic, or not, because of which microbes, and that seems to have a role. The early life, three-month-old um the microbes they have can affect whether or not you have asthma at age five because it shapes how the immune system develops. Obesity, um, the field actually got started a long time ago when people realized they could do fecal transfers from a fat or an obese mouse into a thin mouse. And that thin mouse would then gain, gain weight and get fat and works the other way around too. Thin mouse into fat mouse decreases weight type things. And it seems that People or animals that have the obese phenotype, their microbes are incredibly efficient at generating more energy for, for per unit input of food. Whereas ironically, thin people, their, their microbes are actually not all that good at generating energy and excess energy, of course, can lead to obesity. Another really good one to think about is cardiovascular diseases. So that's heart attacks and strokes. And one would normally never think that microbes were involved in this. Well, the last few years, it turns out that we're wrong again. They actually are, because when you eat red meat, the component of red meat called choline is broken down into a molecule called TMA and by the microbes in your gut, and then your body then modifies that TMA to something called TMAO, and TMAO is the molecule that causes atherosclerosis, which is basically hard in the arteries, which leads to heart attacks if it's in the body or strokes if it's in the brain. So if you take mice that have no microbes in them, you can feed them as much red meat as you want. They never, ever will get atherosclerosis. Um, vegans and veg- vegetarians have very low rates of atherosclerosis. And probably the most exciting things coming along, it's only in mice so far, though, is if you block the microbes enzyme that do that first step, the choline into trimethylamine or, or TMA, that if you block that first step, you actually block atherosclerosis. So you can see where this could go in the future is that you can actually take enzymes that drug the bugs. And so if you do eat red meat or whatever, you could actually prevent the formation of atherosclerosis just by blocking the drugs enzymes. So the the list goes on and on about diseases, and um, there's many different ways these microbes work. There's lots of neat stuff on the gut-brain axis, how the microbes mm-hmm. influencing that. Um, we don't know a lot mechanistically yet how that all works, but the data is there. It's very convincing that microbes play roles in this. And so as scientists, really our, our challenge is to figure out how all this works and how the microbes are doing this. But I think you can pretty much pick any Western society disease that you look around, you see all the time, and ironically, it's just what always associated with microbes. I think many people would actually be very surprised to learn that the the gut microbiome is associated with mental health via the Mm. gut-brain access that you've just mentioned, so things like depression, anxiety, ADHD, they have a connection to the state of a person's gut bacteria. Can you explain how this gut-brain connection works? Um, 
I can't explain how it works, but I can tell you that what you've said is true. Um, there was a, a really nice study in the UK where they looked at millions and millions of antibiotic prescriptions, and there's a direct correlation with more courses of antibiotics for anxiety and depression, which of course are antibiotics affect microbes as we talked about. If you take a depressed, anxious, or stressed mouse or rat and do a fecal transfer into a normal mouse or rat, you transfer anxiety, depression, or stress just in the contents of the feces doing it that way. Um, so there's lots of all these analogies and also Parkinson's, there's amazing data about, maybe we can talk about that later, about how microbes affect it. And, but the problem is, and you asked me, can I tell you how that works? I can't. I don't think anyone can yet. We know microbes are involved. And if you take, say, a mouse that is, doesn't have any microbes in it, a germ-free mouse, their brains do not develop normally at all. They need microbes to help their brains develop. But, so this is really the frontier of science right now, is trying to figure out how on earth you know, gut microbes can influence all the, the, the mental disorders that we seem to see in such high rates in our society. But we don't know how it all works yet. So if we haven't figured out the mechanism yet, how do we know for certain that there actually is a direct connection between the gut and the brain? Well, we know there is a direct connection. Um, let, let's talk about Parkinson's because it's another area that our lab is working on that we know a fair bit about. And so when I say Parkinson's, you, you think of a uh, brain disease in elderly people, usually with the tremor and the stooped walk um, type things. And it's associated with basically the um, destruction of a piece of the brain that makes... Um, um, dopamine, which is basically a neurotransmitter. So everyone thought it was a brain disease. Well, a few years ago in Denmark, they were looking at people that had the vagus nerve cut. This is a nerve that goes from the gut to the brain. And the reason they were cutting that is that people with ulcers back then, it was a treatment to cause the, a decrease in the pain. So they had all these people that had this nerve, the gut brain nerve cut. And what they noticed when they went back many years later is that those people that had a nerve cut, they had way less levels of Parkinson's. And I think we all said, what, huh? What, what is cutting a, you know, the gut brain axis have to do with Parkinson's? It's a brain disease. And of course, few people believe that study. While it's been done twice more in multiple numbers of people, the answer is definitely if you cut the nerve, you have decreased rates of Parkinson's. Now, when you take a look at Parkinson's, about 20 years before you get the brain disease, the number one um, indicator you're heading that way is constipation, which is a gut issue, obviously. And the biggest risk factor for Parkinson's is red meat, which is eaten in the gut. And for the coffee lovers, listeners, I got great news. Coffee is actually about 20% protective for Parkinson's because coffee keeps you motile in the morning. So... Then the other thing that's now come along is there's you know, 15 studies showing that people with Parkinson's have very different microbes in their gut than normal people. And we can actually take a fecal sample from a person and tell whether they have Parkinson's or not just by looking at their gut microbes. And probably the best evidence we have proving it so far is that if you take a mouse model of Parkinson's and you take feces from a person with Parkinson's or their spouse who doesn't have it and put those feces into these mice, the Parkinson's feces causes massive Parkinson's symptoms, whereas the normal people's feces does not, which is pretty scary in a sense. So I think that that the field is now thinking that, well, really, the gut microbes affect, you know, 20 years before you see Parkinson's in the gut, they're screwed up and they affect basically, they, they trigger events in the gut that then go up through the vagus nerve into the brain and it ultimately presents as a brain disease, but it actually started in the gut. Mm. 
Uh, let's move on to a more positive note. Yes, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, this so is my, depressing. <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> uh, well, my favorite section of the book is actually the very last one, where the possibility of using probiotics to treat diseases or disorders is discussed, and uh, fecal transplants are mentioned. Everyone loves fecal transplants yeah, now. <laughs> So what do you see for the future of treating health issues in young children, uh, specifically uh, with probiotics? Yeah, I think there's a bright future in that. I can see the day when the kid is born, hopefully vaginally, but if not C-section, they will then sequence the kid's microbiome. At the same time, they'll be sequencing the kid's genome and they'll say, oh, look, you're missing these particular microbes. You're more at risk for obesity or asthma or something. We're going to give you this collection of microbes in this pill or, you know, paint it on the mother's breast or however it's still there, put it in the, in the breast milk um, and feed it to the kid to then try and correct those microbes. So that's going to be the first way and I think as the kid goes along you'll be monitoring the kid at these different times and seeing what's happening oh no your microbes are going more towards a risk of um, obesity or something then hopefully we need to modify that to then fix it these will not be the probiotics that we know of today these will be new ones um, we're actually working on a mix of microbes that we can use to prevent asthma in kids that don't have the right microbes they've had antibiotics or c-section type thing so I think we're going to see a whole new generation of these um, combination of microbes that will be used um, based on sampling the kids' microbiome. Say, oh, you're really missing these things. We should add these back. It'll make you healthier. In terms of actually treating diseases once you have them, I don't know they'll be as effective. They'll be more effective in giving you microbes so you don't get the diseases in the first place, which is, I think, better medicine anyway. Yeah, that sounds very promising to me. Yeah. So uh, your book, Let Them Eat Dirt, was published a few years ago. Uh, now there's a documentary available that's based in the book. It's called Let Them Eat Dirt, The Hunt for Our Kids Missing Microbes. So tell us about the documentary. Yeah, this is a very exciting project. Once I finished the book, um, I sort of talking, started talking to young mothers, and I don't think any young mother has the time to read an entire book with a newborn and things. So I thought, well, how can we get the information to these mothers faster? So I went on a... on on a crusade, really, and raised a lot of money to actually pay for this. They're quite expensive to make. It's a full-length one-hour documentary done with a producer in the U.S., and it's just starting to come out now. We're having screenings and in negotiation with distributors to make it available. And um, you can see a trailer of the movie at LetThemEatDirt.com, um, and I would urge listeners that want to see this, um, it will be coming out soon. And... Um, and it's all the things we've talked about, but done in an easy format as a documentary. And, you know, just so people can understand what we're trying to say. And we'll also have pieces of the documentary, hopefully on the web. If you have to take antibiotics, what can you do? And we discuss that in the documentary. Or if you have to have a C-section, or what is a fecal transfer type thing. And these are also all about it in the documentary. So it's just another way of getting the information we've been talking about the last while. There's been a question on my mind uh, from the beginning of our interview, uh, and that's why it's why is it that there's just such a small window of time very early in life, which has the greatest impact on our gut health. You know, an infant has no control over what they're fed or how they're given birth to, but as adults, we can develop our understanding of our gut health, and we're much better able right. to uh, change our diet and other aspects of our lifestyle according to that knowledge. Is there a possibility to ever reverse the effects of a poor gut health of poor gut health in adulthood? 
Yes, I think absolutely. I think, you know, the expression is what is it, when's the best time to plant an oak tree 30 years ago? When's the next best time now? Um, so the times of life when microbes seem to have the most influence is what I call the bookends of life. Early in life, the first hundred or thousand days, and then later in life. Um, but that's not to say that all during those other times of life, microbes don't play a role. And once I finished Let Them Eat Dirt, I actually wrote a second book. It's called The Whole Body Microbiome. And I wrote this with my daughter, who's a gerontician. And the idea is, so many people say, well, I've had my kids. What about me? What can I do? And so that's what the whole body microbiome is all about. It's really to try and go through all the different areas that we know that microbes affect adult life and what you can do in terms of you know healthy living and um, promote your own health. So let them eat dirt is for really young kids, but then for the rest of us that aren't kids anymore, we wrote that one. And it's really quite remarkable, all the different things you can do to you know, shape your microbes, everything from on your skin to your urinary tract to in the gut to actually promote general health. Dr. Finley, where can our listeners go to get your books, Let Them Eat Dirt and The Whole Body Microbiome? Um, they're all over the web, Amazon, anywhere, wherever your favorite place is. There's audio versions out. Let Them Eat Dirt's actually now in 14, 15 languages. And um, so just, just Google it. Um, I think at LetThemEatDirt.com, we list where you can also buy them for that book. And Whole Body Microbiome, just search that. It's, it's, and anyone that cares about their health and wants to promote their health through their microbes, both books directly address that. And they're, they're written in layperson language. They're not written for microbiologists, even though I am a microbiologist. They're written so people can understand them. And most importantly, we tried to fill them with as much practical information we could that's based on current science so we refused despite the publishers wanting to say these outrageous things anything we say in there that's based on the scientific evidence that we can find the scientists and then relay that to the readers so yeah i would encourage people to have a look at them thank you so much for your time dr finley yeah absolutely a pleasure thank you very much if you want to learn more about dr brett finley you can check out his links on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 